What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 226, we're talking about ADHD with Dr. James McGuff. Dr. McGuff is a board-certified psychiatrist for both adults and children. He works at UCLA, and he's an expert in ADHD, publishing a book by the same name, which is one of my favorite resources on the topic. Today, we're going to talk about what ADHD is, how it's diagnosed, how it's treated, and how that intersects with sport. But before we get into that, a few important announcements. Uh, First, we have some live in-person seminars coming up from our pain and rehab team. So that's Dr. Derek Miles, Dr. Cameron Clouser, Dr. Charlie Dixon, etc. They're going to be in Bozeman, Montana in June and also Los Angeles in September. So if you're interested in learning more about the pain and rehab process, what to actually do with an injury, if you're a clinician and you want to learn more about pain science, those are the seminars for you. And then we have our two-day health and performance seminar. That's with Dr. Baraki, myself, and the rest of the Barbell Medicine crew. We'll be in Sacramento, California in October at Untamed Strength. And they'll also be down under in the South Pacific in Sydney, Australia in January of 2024. Looks like we're also going to be in Perth, probably for a training camp, but that's not on the uh, uh, schedule just yet. So you can check out the link in the description below if you want to attend one of our seminars. Also upcoming this weekend is Memorial Day weekend in the United States, and uh, we're going to run some sales just like we do every year. So if you head over to the website, you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get first dibs on the new stuff that's on our website. First off, we have a new apparel drop that's coming this weekend. Also, all of our supplements will be back in stock this weekend. So all flavors of WayRx, the new formulation of PeriRx with and without caffeine, all the stuff is going to be available for purchase at a discount uh, this weekend for our Memorial Day weekend sale. All right, let's head to the show. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a 4-inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry-exclusive micro-adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to GeneralLeatherCraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high-quality, versatile clothing to wear both inside and outside of the gym for men and women. Again, my favorite are the core shorts and the Rise Tee. I've been super impressed with the core shorts and their longevity for now about four months that I've been training in them. No pilling, no tears. They're super stretchy, and honestly, they look great both inside and outside the gym. Same thing with the Rise Tee. Every time I wash it, it comes out of the laundry perfect, ready to wear, whether, again, I'm going to the gym or just wearing it casually. So check them out. Uh, They also have golf stuff if you're a golfer and you're wondering, hey, uh, what sort of stuff could I wear on the course uh, that would double you know, in my day-to-day life? It's really really good stuff it looks clean and uh you know look good feel good play well that's uh that's my motto so go to viore uh all of their sources are sustainable and they offset their carbon footprint 100 percent. you can go to their website viore.com backslash barbell and get 20 percent off your first order All right, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Very special guest on episode 226, Dr. McGuff. He is the ADHD expert. How do I know this? Because in our previous interaction, I asked him for a, a text on this. and He goes, hey, here's a book that I wrote. He literally wrote the book on the topic. Uh, Dr. McGuff, great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, Jordan, it's great to be here. Yeah, uh, I'm super excited about this one. We do get a ton of questions on ADHD, and in particular, the uh, pharmacological management of the condition. But before we get into it, why don't you give our listeners uh, just sort of a, a brief, you know, uh, a rundown of how you got to where you're at uh, and your sort of education and, and career background? Um, sure. Um, well, it was a little circuitous, I'd say. I was a, a biology religion major in, in college. I uh, originally went to grad school um, for a master's in environmental studies and at one point had an epiphany and decided I really wanted to go into psychiatry. So I, uh, trotted down to the dean's office and, you know, basically said, hey, can I make a case to go to medical school? Um, so fortunately, that worked out. And um, I pretty much wanted to go into psychiatry from the get-go and 
stayed with that. I'm, I might have gone into endocrinology, might have been my second, my second choice. But nonetheless, I stuck with psych. And um, I did a, a training in adult psychiatry, as, as all child psychiatrists do first. And then I came to UCLA, which was really one of the leading centers in child and adolescent psychiatry. And I did a fellowship here. And then returned uh, on the faculty where I've been since. And um, most of my time is spent um, uh, in clinical teaching, ADHD research. Um, I do some ethical stuff and I do some things nationally, but, but pretty much focusing most of my clinical activities on, is on ADHD. Yeah. So in, after medical school, you do adult psychiatry first. That's your four year kind of, kind of gig, right? Right. And then right. what's the fellowship? Is it a two year? Yeah. A, child, a child, child psychiatry training is, is two additional years. So we mm-hmm. like to say we're the completely trained psychiatrists because we, <laughs> we all child psychiatrists are fully trained adult psychiatrists. Um, you get to push two years together. So, so I spent five years in residency after med school. Yeah. Just really a glutton for punishment. You're like, let, how do we <laughs> extend this? Yeah. Um, but if you, if you enjoy what you do then it's okay. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, then the question I have to ask you as a psychiatrist, did you read the book House of God by uh, Dr. Shem? I did read the book House of God. I think uh, I think when I went to med school, everybody was reading that. And uh, I don't know if that was still going on when you went to med school. But I, uh, yeah, I read it twice. I read it once before <laughs> medical school and I was terrified. I'm like, okay, if this is what I have in store for residency, I'm, I'm terrified. And then I read it after residency and I was like, oh, now it's funny. So, well, it's funny. You, you get to the end of that book and you find out that the guy's answer to all the horribleness that he's gone through is to become a psychiatrist. And the guy who wrote it was is actually a Harvard-affiliated psychiatrist. So yeah. that was the big joke. That makes um, sense. So. Uh, what's Who's your typical patient? So, Because now you're focusing predominantly on child psychiatry. So is it like up until age 18 and then they leave your care? Or what's the – how do they get no, to No, actually – so, so – um, one little known fact is actually you have an adolescent brain until you're 25, okay. uh, which is why the data really suggests that car companies won't lease to you because you're still kind of reckless. But that's true. And the brain imaging studies show that. But pediatricians and child psychiatrists are very comfortable treating people to about 25, so through college. Um, but as I said, I'm also an adult psychiatrist, and I focus on ADHD, and I treat people, I've treated kids as young as two and three. And I have patients in their 80s. So it's a, it's a lifespan disorder. Um, I don't kick people out when they turn 25. So I see really people across the gamut. Although most of my patients, very honestly, um, it may overlap with a lot of your listeners. I see a lot of, a lot of teens and a lot of guys usually in their, in their 20s. So um, young adults and teens um, probably are most of who I see, but really people across the whole lifespan. Yeah. Very interesting. Now here's a question. So how did you get into lifting? Because effectively every <laughs> professional we bring on here has some keen interest in, in training. So how did you get into it? Well, that, uh, so again, so I'm, I'm in my mid sixties, just so your audience knows. Um, I was a, uh, a scrawny cross country runner in high school and college. And, uh, mostly I've been mostly an endurance athlete my whole life. And I've, I've exercise worked out, you know, my whole life, sometimes to my wife's chagrin. But, um, you know, running, swimming, cycling, I was the fastest physician in the 1990 LA Marathon. Um, but I've, I've been in and out of the gym, you know, since college. But I was thinking, though, I don't know what powerlifters were doing 40 years ago, but I think most normal folk was doing like, you know, three times a week, full body workouts, three sets per muscle group, eight to 12 reps, call it a day, you know, go to Wendy's, you know, that was kind of, that was what we were doing. Um, there's been so much, so many advances in science. And I think your show does a great job. I know you've got, you know, I think it's Brad Schoenfeld, other people really doing amazing work, pushing what we understand and, you know, putting the stake in bro science heart. Um, um, but I think about, about nine or 10 years ago, honestly, um, you know, my joints started giving out. I wasn't going to run eight miles a day anymore. And really started focusing more and more on being in the gym so that now I've kind of flipped it. Uh, you know, I go to the gym usually five times a week. I still do a little cardio every day, more on my non-lifting days. Uh, but I've also, and, and I think that the science supports this, it's become really clear that as you get into middle age, it's hugely important to keep muscle mass and you got to work on it. And, you know, it really makes sense in your 40s and 50s to, to keep that 
keep the muscle on because you do hit a point. I don't know, you know, I don't know when you're going to hit 40, uh, Jordan, but you know, eventually you start, you start losing it. So I think the more you have, as you get older, the better off you are. So, you know, my philosophy now, it's not about making gains. It's about avoiding losses. Um, But I really like going to the gym. It's a lot of fun and, you know, it's, it's recreational. So that's really where I am now. Yeah. I often characterize it as like a physical 401k. You get to keep making deposits up until a certain point and then you got to start drawing down your balance. <laughs> you got to start using them, right? Yeah. But right. we're going to, we're going to give you the title, the honorary title of the strongest psychiatrist in the world. We don't know uh, this to be true, but no, I don't no, know no, I've got a, we're, we're gonna, I know we're going to talk about exercise and, and some, I, I've got a, a, a colleague who uh, would put me to shame. We'll talk about him in a little bit. All right. Fair enough. So, uh, so just again, before we pop into ADHD, like specific uh, discussion, I think some of our listeners at least are unfamiliar with like kind of the whole breadth of the psychiatry field. And so they might think, well, they're, they just do the talky, the talky stuff, uh, or, or just prescribe SSRIs. And that's, that's it. You know, there, um, can you give our listeners kind of a brief overview? Like what is the scope of a psychiatrist, um, in clinical practice and maybe how that differentiates from psychology and like a clinical psychologist and, and yeah. Yeah, that's again, that's something people perpetually get mixed up on. Um, psychiatrists are medical doctors. I went to medical school. Um, I can do a physical. I can take a medical history. I can write your Viagra prescription. I can <laughs> I can write your antibiotics. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a fully licensed physician. Um, I'm even licensed as a surgeon, but I would not do that. Um, uh, psychiatry today mostly focuses on. Uh, I would say emotional and behavioral disorders that are are fairly biologically focused. So we we tend to see the the, the sicker people or more impaired people. Um, psychiatrists are trained in doing talk therapy, and that could be a very important part of what we do. But there are other people who can do that, and they do it just as well, and it can be less expensive. So so typically, say a psychologist, a PhD in psychology, is really likely an expert in some sort of behavior and their interventions are sort of psychosocial they talk um uh, they're very effective types of therapies for certain things we usually do that in tandem with them by all uh psychiatrists usually come in uh really when it's necessary to do a a good medically focused assessment Mm -hmm. and then probably when you get into prescribing medications that's that's not all of what we do but that's a main focus that's a main difference Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and then so because of your additional training in the child and adolescent psychiatry, it, what's the biggest difference as far as what you can tell between that and like adult psychiatry? I assume just given the demands it, throughout childhood and adolescence, you know, the early formative years, you're talking a lot of education stuff, school like experience, et cetera, versus maybe in the workplace or general life stuff. What, what's the, what are the biggest differences as far as you can tell? I, I think there's two fundamental differences really in our in our perspectives. So typically you go to see an adult psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist will sit and they will talk with you and they will get your history and they will formulate their ideas about what's going on based on what you say. Child psychiatrists have, um, I would say difference one is we have a more systems-based approach. So my view, and, and this will be just as relevant in, a, in an older person, but it's absolutely necessary. An eight-year-old doesn't really give you a great history. So with kids, you really have to rely on getting information from as broad an array of sources as you can. So you you certainly want to talk to the parents. You may want to get input from the schools. You really want to get the most global view of this person. And I actually, again, because this is my perspectives, I may, there are privacy issues and such, but if I'm talking to a young adult, I'm talking to somebody in, in their 30s, maybe their significant other has something to contribute. It's just the idea that I will listen to other people before I make my decision. I'm not just going to base it on what you tell me. And then the other aspect is we really have what I think I would call a, uh, a developmental perspective. So even if I were meeting with you, I would ask you, well, where did you grow up? And, you know, what did your parents, was it two, two parents, one parent, no parent, other siblings? What did you do in high school? I mean, I, I, did you have any bad trauma? You know, were you ever abused? Um, for me, it's very important to have a, a real developmental perspective on what what brought you to where you are. And even when I, um, you know, when I teach our fellows who have to manage shorter and shorter visits, I say like, well, on the first visit, what is it like to have dinner with these people, right? 
Like have an understanding. Are there two parents there? Are there one parent? Do they even eat dinner? Like, like what is it like to be in this person's shoes in their home? And I think having that perspective um, is really, really helpful. And then it helps you target your treatment to what this person needs. So I think those are the differences. I think, I think we look to broader sources of information and we have more of a sense of how development influences uh, what brings people to where they are. Yeah, no, that, that definitely uh, corroborates my experience reading the medical history and, and notes in somebody's chart based on either the psychiatrist notes or infectious disease as like the running <laughs> people do the most thorough histories about, you know, how this person came to be or come under the, you know, into the hospital, for example. And uh, yeah, so hats off to your whole field. As opposed to like patient for gallbladder. Yeah, right. right. The, surgeon, <laughs> the surgeon's notes <laughs> has gallbladder, will remove. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, all right. So let's, let's pop into this, uh, this podcast topic, ADHD. Just to begin, can you give our listeners just an overview of what is ADHD as far as from a definition standpoint? So, so attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is the official name, ADHD. You don't have to be hyperactive to have it, but that's what it's called. And we don't have to get into that nitty gritty. It's really characterized by having levels of either inattention and or hyperactivity impulsivity that exceed what's normal for your level. Right. So, you know, first graders are restless and impulsive and hyperactive, but it's the kid in the class who is way at the end of the distribution, like really stands out as an outlier. They're the people we're, we're talking about. Uh, and it has to be associated with impairment. So you have this set of symptoms and it's causing you distress. I'm not going to give medicine to somebody who can't even tell me why they need it. Right. Um, so as part of the diagnostic assessment, again, we're getting information from as many sources as we can. We're trying to confirm if these symptoms are present or not. Typically, you see them in more than one setting. If a kid is an angel in school, but they're hell at home, maybe something's wrong with the home and it's not ADHD, right? So you got to sort all that out. Uh, and then that will give you, you know, the diagnosis. In an adult, it's also important to really follow the trajectory over time. Usually there's some evidence by middle school that they're having problems focusing or, you know, they're overly impulsive, but sometimes it's, it's, it's med school before they're really showing impairment because they're particularly smart or they've had, you know, they've gone to really good schools or they've, they've, you know, paid people or whatever. So it's a very careful history. And then it's also important, ADHD is associated, having ADHD puts you at risk for a lot of other both psychiatric and medical issues. So it's really important as part of your assessment to see, are you, you know, is there depression? Is there anxiety? Is there substance abuse, which is most common? And, um, and there are health choices. Uh, people with ADHD tend to make bad health decisions. So substance abuse, nicotine, uh, sexual choices, um, things like that. So that would all be part of the assessment. But again, it's a, it's a, brain-based neurodevelopmental disorder. It's mostly genetic. It's about as heritable as height. So tall parents have tall kids and short parents have short kids. Uh, it's about 70% due to genes. So love and sunshine and food probably made you the size you are, uh, but, but it's mostly in your DNA. And it's the same with ADHD. You know, better, more stable homes, you can do better. More chaotic homes, you do worse. Um, we've actually shown now, or it's been shown, that patterns of brain growth differ in these kids compared to typical kids. They actually have slower myelination of their prefrontal cortex. So the, the front areas of the brain, which is like the control center, um, is about three years behind in terms of its, of its myelination. Uh, some of the circuits in the brain that have to do with attention and reward don't communicate as well in groups of kids compared to groups of typically an individual scan doesn't tell you anything, but in group scans, there are brain based differences in this. So this isn't like, this isn't like a feminist conspiracy to turn boys to girls as a uh, one right wing commentator said um, it's rooted in the brain. So, uh, and it affects about one out of 10 people, one out of 10 school age kids, anywhere you go on the planet, because the genes that are there are old. There are quite a few of them giving little effects and it's part of being human. And about half of those people still have difficulties as adults. So four to 5% of adults anywhere you go on the planet have uh, issues related to ADHD. 
Yeah, I wonder like evolutionarily, since it is so widespread, right? You would think like, man, does this co-occur with some other trait that we like selected for over time? Because you would expect, you know, you go back far enough, oh, maybe this wasn't great for like passing your genes on. Well, well, so there's a um, there's debate about that, and mm-hmm. uh, probably people who are smarter than me say basically no, there's no advantage. But I don't actually buy that. One thing that um, one issue about people with ADHD, it's, it's not that they can't focus. It's that they don't shift their focus properly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what we see is hyper-focus. So, you know, maybe the, the I don't know if you ever, there's this book called The Source, which is like a, a biblical history of Israel. And the first, the first thing at 10,000 BC is this boy who climbs a tree to steal honey from a bee's nest so he can feed his family. And he gets stung. And he falls, but he has the honey. Maybe there's something about the ability to hyper-focus. I think, you know, who's going to live on D-Day? You know, who's going to make it up the hill with the bombs and the guns and the everything? Maybe there's something to hyper-focusing. You know, maybe Michael Phelps, who's admitted he has ADHD before a meet, gets into a zone that mm. you cannot crack. So I, I think there are advantages, but unfortunately, when your job is to sit in the classroom all day, it tends not to work out so well for you. Yeah, the the demands of modern society and whatnot maybe are less compatible than they used to be. I, I'd right. buy that. We'll see. Okay, so you you went over some of the, the symptoms and signs. Uh, there are di- diagnostic criteria, and we don't need to go through the full thing, but just for our listenership, you know, how is this diagnosed? Do, do, is it the family practitioner doing it, or or they get referred? And then if so, uh, what are the general like kind of diagnostic criteria? Well, I think the starting point is you know you know. You've heard this a hundred times. Common things are common. Yep. You know, rare things occur, but common things are common. When a kid has academic difficulties or is a behavioral problem in school, odds are it's ADHD. So that would prompt an assessment. Or the question to ask an adult is basically, if you're interrupted while working and you get knocked off task, or can you get back to it? Mm. And Invariably, they'll say, no, crap, if, I'm, if I get a text message, I'm, I'm off, right? So those are the screening questions. Then we've got really good questionnaires that can be very simply filled out in your office. Uh, a family doc could, or a pediatrician, they do this all the time. It, there's a whole bunch of them. You choose your favorite. And if you score in a certain level, then a little bit more history uh, should be obtained. Um, most of this work is actually done by primary care doctors. So to the extent, you know, I know in primary care, you know, I, I was treated a while by a family medicine doctor who's now, I think, the team doctor for the Lakers. He's a phenomenal sports medicine guy. Um, you know, primary care people have their specialties, and many of them are really, really very good at ADHD. Psychiatrists, because there are fewer of us, we tend to see the worser ones. Mm. Um, maybe if you're in a big city and you can send it down to your friend down the hallway, great. But if you're in Montana... And there's one child psychiatrist in the state, we got to rely on the primary care people. So filling out the questionnaires and then a little bit more of a history taking just to confirm that this really is causing problems for you. Let's let's write down what our targets are that we want to treat. And then we have something we can decide if we're making progress or not. Yeah. Uh, is your, in your estimation, is ADHD like underdiagnosed, overdiagnosed? Because some people will say, ah, oh, we're just diagnosing all the kids with ADHD, but that's not the impression I got from your book. So it's a little bit variable. I think, you know, I mean, you used to be, I mean, I'm on the West side of LA. Yeah. A lot of people want to, you know, they want to make it to Stanford. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they bring their kids for services, they get accommodations. So it may be a little bit overdiagnosed in affluent areas. And because, frankly, there are real health access issues in underserved areas, we're probably, you know, not getting it as much. But overall, we're we're diagnosing it at about the rates you would expect, given the prevalence and how it's defined. So I don't think this idea that we just anybody who's, you know, bounces like a squirrel has ADHD. I, I don't I don't buy that. I think we actually do a pretty good job. And. And even though we're still relying on subjective criteria, mm-hmm. um, as I said, we identify kids who have genetic findings, brain imaging findings. And I, I could tell you with assurance that if I call somebody ADHD, I've got a friend on the East Coast, you know, I've got a buddy at Mass General, he'll call the same kid ADHD. We're good. We're good at that. So yeah. the reliability is good between. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, okay. it's good. 
all right, so say somebody, you know, goes through the the entire diagnostic process, they they receive the diagnosis, so it's individual with ADHD. What's the next step as far as treatment? So is this where do you start and kind of what options are available? So my first step is is what I call psychoeducation. Um, what I like to say sometimes is like, you know, yes, I think you have ADHD. I want you to understand this as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And then I start to talk to them. And if I'm, you know, feeling inspired that morning, I can take some of what I've heard about their life and weave it back to them. Because people, you know, I've had adults who their whole lives, they feel like they've been told they're stupid or they're lazy. And it's so gratifying for them to know, hey, I've got a thing. Like, I'm not alone in this. But I think understanding this is brain-based, it's neurodevelopmental, it's genetic. Um, I'm careful not to, you know, make people think they're horribly flawed. I put it in terms of, look, people have strengths and weaknesses. I'm a terrible basketball player. My sister sister was an NBA hotshot in in high school, and I am terrible. Okay, I found other things to do, right? So you kind of help the person you know, understand this is okay, it's common, it's normal. But psychoeducation is the first first step. Secondly, I think getting back to that systems approach, you know, what's going on in the family? Um, There are parenting skills, there are parent management skills that are basically good for all kids. And Mm -hmm. I think every primary care office in the country should have easy referral to a parent trainer to help young families with their kids. Those things are good. So I ask, you know, are parents on the same page with their their parenting? And and each, so so and if they need a ten week course in good parenting, I think everybody could benefit from a ten week course in good parenting, right? So you think about that. Um, you know, uh, then you go on to school. And notice, I'm going through the systems that the kid is in, right? Mm-hmm. So all right, I thought about the home. And maybe in an older person, they're in a terrible relationship and they need relationship therapy. All right. Well, that's not primary ADHD, but in this person, yeah, if you're going to hold your relationship together, maybe guys should work on that, right? Um, uh, School. We give – there's a process for formal accommodations in school. And basically, if you're a a, a elementary school kid with ADHD – they give you, they call them 504 accommodations. You you get preferential seating. You get to take breaks during your big tests. You get more time on big tests. And that can carry forward into high school. If people are still taking SATs, they get more time on their SATs. So there are accommodations at school. And similarly in adults, sometimes there are accommodations in the workplace. I was, uh, I evaluated a guy last week he works in a big glass office, like in the middle of 15 people working. It's a terrible environment for uh, for ADHD. Now, he may not get a corner office next to the vice president, but, you know, giving a little bit of thought to what's what's yeah. reasonable, like what are reasonable accommodations to help this person, you know, do the job. So that's that. Socially, now, I am of the view that um, I like, and I know we're going to talk about exercise in a bit, I like to know that my patients are doing normal stuff. There's there's a cost to going, there's a cost to a nine-year-old who's getting dragged to a therapist every week. Mm. I would rather the kid out playing Saturday soccer or being on a swim team or being in the band where they're doing normal stuff and they can get some self-worth doing that. So if they do that, I'm fine. Like I'm not gonna send you to therapy. There are some particular therapies that have been shown to be helpful for teenagers and adults, their cognitive behavioral therapy. Again, it's like a 10-week course. We teach you to plan your time better. We teach you to organize. We teach you some mindfulness. Um, and that's very effective. So maybe in an older person, I might recommend that. And then finally, we get to medication. And I leave that to last. Um, medicines are the only thing that really get at those core symptoms. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's the only answer. So I go through all of that other stuff, and then I start talking to uh, – to the folks about meds. Yeah. It's like a very holistic approach, which is probably not what most people envisioned, you know, Oh, we're the psychiatrist we're the, we're the, uh, we deal in medicines most of the time. And so, but yeah, I, I like that approach, uh, where you're liter- you're con- considering every sort of environmental, social, you know, uh, sort of interaction and, and how to best serve this individual. And then, yeah, finally, if we got to, if we have to use medications, we'll do that too. Um, no, no real gold star to like going through your whole life without medication, you know? Well, well, and, and quite truthfully, meds are usually part of the plan. 
Mm-hmm. All the other stuff is, again, really personally tailored because I've sat and I've listened and I sort of have a sense of what the issues are with this person. And, uh, and that's really, to me, what guides that part of the discussion. But we'll probably will get to medicines before yeah. the end of it. Okay. So that's the, on the initial plant. So what sort of medications are the most common as far as, obviously there are stimulants and non-stimulant versions. Right. Uh, what do you see in, in clinical practice most of the time? So there are, there are stimulants and non-stimulants that are FDA approved. Uh, the stimulants work the best and I only go to a non-stimulant um, if a stimulant doesn't work. And there, there's been some discussion, some have recommended that, uh, example, uh, athletes before they get exemptions, should have a try on non-stimulants. I don't agree with that. The stimulants are most effective. They're easy to use. They're safe. I would start there. For the stimulants themselves, I, I break it down. There's, there, I call it, there's the Ritalin family and the Adderall family. Um, there are a couple of choices within each, but it's mostly, you know, it's, 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 it's release mechanisms. How long does it last? It's, it's, it, but they're basically two drugs. Um, the Ritalin medicines are, are a little milder and gentler, the, and I actually prefer them in smaller, younger people. The Adderall medicines are stronger, and um, uh, they tend to last longer. I prefer them in older, bigger people. But at the end of the day, I prescribe what your insurance is going to pay for because it's not worth the difference paying several hundred dollars for one versus $20 for the other. So again, I work with the families. I give them what they can get. Um, and then you sort of make your choices from there. Um, you know, again, uh, if somebody, if somebody, is somebody in a doctor's office working 14 hours a day, or is this like a third grader that goes home at three and can run around? So, you know, you try to, you try to target um, your choice to the need. All the stimulants have the same side effects. The major side effect is, uh, is uh, appetite loss. So mm-hmm. particularly in younger people, that's something to talk about. And in, you know, pre-pubertal people, there's some risk of, of growth delay, if not ending up a centimeter shorter, um, if you're on these in, a, in an ongoing period of time. And, you know, I can discuss that. More idiosyncratically, say people get headaches and stomach aches. It, it's variable. Some people just feel crappy on the medicines. But the nice thing about the stimulants is it's a one-day deal. They take about a half hour to kick in. It's you need to find the right dose. So I always spend a couple of weeks, you know, low, medium, high doses within the normal range to find their sweet spot. Um, it doesn't make sense to give somebody a prescription and say, come back in three months, tell me how you're doing. No, you take the time, you get it right. Um, but no matter what happens, um, it's over that day. So, mm. so okay, maybe you feel like you're on, you know, you had a monster drink too many, ride the wave, dude, you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll get it right. But they're very safe. And we've, we've used, and you know, to cardiovascular and exercise effects, these meds have been used in tens of millions of people. And there is no safety signal. It is safe. Mm. They have had adults on these meds for decades, no cardiovascular risk, no stroke risk. Um, at the normal doses we use, these medicines are safe. They can be a nuisance. And there's some things you need to deal with. But Big picture, the benefits of being on them properly titrated for people with ADHD far outweighs any sort of nuisance problem. Yeah, I was going to, I always wondered, you know, what your sense of the efficacy was. And my comparison or my comparator here is, uh, for example, in major depressive disorder with standard SSRI treatment, the efficacy is in general, not that great on its own. Uh, and so obviously many skeptics, if you listen to this, are like, yeah, they don't do anything compared to whatever. Right. So what's your sense of the efficacy? Are we seeing like so, complete so treatment I, here? Or yeah. Not- so so I don't know if, how, to what degree your audience is is you know familiar with what a p-value is. And sure. you know, at first step, p less than 0.05, it works. That's actually a, a big oversimplistic um, statistic. There's a much better statistic called number needed to treat. Mm-hmm. And that number is how many people do I need to treat to get one person more better on active drug compared to placebo? For ADHD, it's about you need to treat 1.8 people oh to be gosh. better off. So <laughs> almost everybody, uh, about 70% of people do fine on any stimulant you pull off your shelf. That and another be- 70% does fine with the other one. 
that so may be it's, the best NNT that I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Best. And again, I don't know. What's the number needed to treat for lisinopril and hypertension? You know, yeah, it, it's right. Sure. Yeah. Right. So um, the number needed to treat for an SSRI in juvenile depression is 10. Mm-hmm. So you need to give 10 kids Prozac to get one more better than you'd get if you just gave them candy, yeah. right? So anyway, this is of the most robust positive findings in all of psychiatry. I don't think there's anything else as effective as our medicines for ADHD. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I guess there's there's been some discussion of, okay, uh, yes, we're getting them better based on some sort of validated metric, right? But as far as like kids in school and how they perform on tests, for example, or uh, adults in the workplace, uh, do you get a sense of like the magnitude of improvement uh, in those well, settings? We have, uh, we have rating scales and in studies, you know, we'll show 30 to 50% symptom improvement on a, on a rating scale. But I'm always, um, it's really gratifying when some parent comes in and says, my kid got kid of the week. Or, you know, an adult lawyer comes in and says, I've tripled my work output. Um, and, and, you know, those are the things that, that, in the end of the day, that's what's more meaningful to me. It's not simply a symptom scale. But, and, and I tell people, if I'm not making a measurable difference in your life, we're not going st- to stick with this. The biggest thing that usually happens, though, you know, um, I know, in, again, we're talking about blood pressure medicines and statins. Almost nobody takes their meds all the time. Uh, people forget, people do this, it's a pain in the neck, I'm on vacation. Um, typically, if you go off your ADHD meds, it's really clear right away that those meds are still giving you something. And, you know, it's a natural sort of experiment. Well, is he still better or are they still better than, than when days they don't take their medicine? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So that, you know, I think in those sort of real world ways, um, we have confidence that we're making a difference. Yeah, that was certainly the impression I got by reading the book that you you had sent me so so kindly. I was, okay. Well, because again, you know, my we get a little bit of training in this, particularly family medicine, but not sure. near, not nearly enough. And uh, obviously, going into the weeds with respect to data was very eye opening for me. So, uh, I wanted to pivot this towards um, sort of maybe a performance. Uh, aspect with respect to these medications because I think they're being used recreationally. I mean, well, I, they certainly are. Uh, but before we pop into that, just kind of the the more common question we get is about using these agents, these pharma- pharmacological agents, either Adderall or Ritalin based, and exercise. So a number of studies suggest that increased levels of physical activity are associated with an improvement in the core symptoms of ADHD, including cognitive function and actually the efficacy of medications with little risk of harm. So it's recommended that individuals meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines. Are you talking with your patients and or their parents about exercise regularly when you see them or how does that come so up? I, so I think, that's, you know, I, let, me, let me take a minute to address this in a couple of ways. Um, what I absolutely do is talk about general health stuff. So I absolutely, and again, even with my teens privately, we're going to talk about recreational drugs and we're going to talk about alcohol and we're going to talk about sex because all those things happen and I'm not making judgments about those, but it's really important for the patient to know that they can talk about it and to help them make good decisions, right? Every kid, I, every guy I send off to college, I tell them, you know, look, the first couple of weeks, freshman year, I can tell you that the two things just about every freshman guy wants, and one of it is to get drunk and you can tell me the other one, but, but, um, you know, so use your head, you know, don't drink to excess, don't have sex without permission. I mean, that's a very important part of, of I think, what we do. Uh, and, um, and I acknowledge that they're going to do all those things. I'm not judging that, but, but I want them to use good judgment as they do it. In terms of exercise, so I'm, um, I think it's really important for these kids, these people not to feel damaged. And what I really like to do is if I get any sense of some passion they have, then I would really support that. Um, And, you know, if it happens to be playing basketball or it happens to be playing, you know, the clarinet, I I, want to know that this kid feels value in themselves. And and so I certainly promote that. Um, In terms of, you know, then there are some specific sports things to kind of get into. But... It's good to be active. What I don't want to hear, video games are normal and they're fine. But if you're on your bed for 12 hours a day playing Minecraft, you, you, you got, you know, right? So I, I address those sorts of things. But 
I'm sure you know from primary care, there's a motivational way to engage with people. You can't scold them or lecture them. You have to try to help them see, you know, what's going on. So I don't, you know, I don't dictate workout regimens for people. I try to seize on what they're interested in and encourage it. But if I put a, let me put a pin one second. I have a colleague, I alluded to him before. Um, he's a former student. He's a friend. Um, he's, he's a current physique competitor. He's about 50. He has a full gym in his office suite. He has a full-time trainer and dietitian on his staff. And he has really implemented a complete holistic approach to um, child adolescent mental health. So he is all gung-ho. He's, he's, he's a delightful, smart, really great doctor. Um, but he has gone full into this. And I think this is sort of a new trend. He's actually given workshops at our national meetings. He, I think he carried like 300 pounds of weights with him last year. So he was having the, the, the doctors like work out. But there are people doing this. And I think, again, to the point that it enhances self-esteem, um, you know, I, I think it's really good. Yeah, go, go work out in the gym a couple of days a week. At least feel better about yourself. So I, I'm all in for about encouraging that. Now, the, there's an old day that all you, you got to do is go run around like and burn off this energy. That's, that's nonsense. It's, it's unfortunately not that simple. But I think um, good physical health and good physical activity is good for everybody. And I think doctors actually need to do a better job of encouraging people to do it. I'm sure you've said that on this podcast before. Yeah, to throw it back to that number needed to treat value, it's 12 for exercise promotion in the clinic. For <laughs> yeah. 12 insufficiently active people, you counsel them on exercise. One person will start and maintain exercise well, for a year. Yeah. Let's not pretend that the, um, uh, you know, if we sampled uh, 15 38-year-old physicians in their offices, they're, they're not going to look like you or me. <laughs> that's, that's true. So, that that right. is true, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. So yeah. God but bless so, them all. But you would say, though, that exercise on these agents is safe in general. That's a whole – yes. So to that part of the question, absolutely. Within the doses that we prescribe, you mm -hmm. do get a little bit of a blood pressure increase and a little bit of a pulse increase, but probably not the blood pressure and pulse increase you feel as you're stepping up to do your deadlifts in a powerlifting competition, right? Let's so so there's no, there's, there's, you have no concern. Now there is, I know you, you and Austin did a podcast a couple of months ago about sudden cardiac death. Mm -hmm. um, there is a risk of, you know, there's, as you guys said, there's a baseline risk of sudden cardiac death. Um, we have history screening that is so, so effective, but we can't do echoes on everybody. I do that screening. And now and again, I find the person who has had syncable episodes or, a, you know, a cousin at age 22 died suddenly. And, and I've had some kids who have the cardiomyopathy. So we do screen for that. That's sort of an exceptional case. But yeah. outside, again, and that's, there's as much risk of a sudden death being a cheerleader as, as, as you know, being on Adderall. So we do, I am mindful of that. But that's rare, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Most athletes, if you're clear, um, go for it. There's no reason at all within normal doses not to uh, to just do what you need to do. Yeah, that's been my sense as I've learned more and more about this as well. And, and as far as any benefit of exercise on the efficacy of the medication, I don't know how we'd parse that out, uh, but d maybe maybe something there, un unclear. One thing that was interesting though, as I was kind of going, doing my, my legwork here, I did not know that there was a lot of interest in like elimination diets and particular nutritional approaches to uh, as like an adjunctive treatment to ADHD. Are you familiar with that? And if so, yeah, like mo most of that is pretty old. Mm -hmm. I think before we really understood the, uh, the genetic basis of this, if you go back to the sixties, this was all blamed on bad marriages and then they started oh, no. treating the kids and the marriages got better. So, so that was wrong. And then there was this idea that, well, it's red dye number three or it's sugar. I get people come in and say, well, if he has a candy bar, he's, you know that, you know, having a candy bar doesn't boost your sugar. It actually crashes your sugar. Mm -hmm. um, so, so at, you know, and, and they got into crazy things like all these elimination diets where you only can eat lamb or this, all that stuff. None of that has panned out. They've done these great studies where they mash all the food up and some of the food has high carbs and some that there is no difference. So that's all. Kind of, you know, my view is uh, should have a healthy diet. Mm -hmm. Eat a wide variety of mostly good unprocessed stuff. Um, you know, 
you want to have a little chocolate now and again, you want to have some birthday cake, go for it. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, come on, kids, kids get hyper arguing about chocolate, not eating it. So the diet stuff is that again, you should have all things in moderation. There's no need to live like a monk. Um, yeah. just eat smart. Yeah. It seems like a health promoting dietary pattern would be, you know, again, beneficial for virtually all things, including this, but that, yeah, I was curious about the elimination diet. Yeah. There's nothing specific. No, that's, that's completely been panned again. I think, um, just good general health Mm -hmm. is the way to go. Is there a connection at all between ADHD and like adolescent obesity or even adulthood, uh, obesity, something like that? Yeah. Curiously, while the medicines are associated with appetite loss, and sometimes weight loss, which is an issue, say, for my uh, my football players who just want to be jacked. Yeah. Um, um, the big picture is long-term, there does seem to be an increased risk for obesity amongst people with ADHD. And the presence or absence of treatment doesn't seem to have impact on that. I think it's more consistent with the fact that um, people with ADHD tend to make poor health choices. Mm. They tend not to be good at impulse control. And over time, you know, a lot of times they don't pay attention to their health and obesity seems to be more of an issue. Yeah. So we haven't quite figured that out yet. Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting finding just again, like if this is more of a constellation of, like you said, poor, you know, relatively poor health choices or risky behaviors in general, like these things tend to overlap, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I don't think we know completely, but that does seem to be what's happening. Yeah. Uh, kind of pivoting into more exercise performance type stuff. Most recent figures from the World Anti-Doping Association, so WADA, reveals that banned stimulants were responsible for 15% of all positive urine samples from tested athletes uh, with methylphenidate being the most common agent. What do you make of this? Like, it, are people just out there using these things for, for gain or, or is this more of a lack of a therapeutic use exemption and people getting caught? Yeah, I think this is a little complicated. Um, uh, now, these medicines are mostly used for performance enhancement of academics. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we know who the people are who basically get their buddies Adderall and they use it and they stay up all night. And it isn't shown to be really effective. But that's where a lot of the concern is. But in spite of that, um, yeah, there's there's become quite a kind of a, I don't know if it's a black market or underground dealing in these medicines. I think if you have ADHD, being on your medicine makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of studies, actually, if you have ADHD, for example, you're at higher risk to get concussed for concussions in sports. People with ADHD on their medicines have lower incidences of concussions than typical people. So mm-hmm. there's real value in if you're you know, diagnosed um, to think about being on it while you're, while you're competing. Um, and if you are one of those people, getting a therapeutic use ex- exemption is what you should do. Uh, the NFL, um, Major League Baseball, NCAA, WADA, they've all set up processes now where you can document your condition ahead of time and get permission to be on the medicine. And again, for your folks who have ADHD, you got to do that. I treated, I think you're a motocross guy. I, I had a guy, a world champion, lost his championship because he was found dirty had ADHD, but didn't have the exemption. Mm -hmm. So if you are in that group, just take care of the paperwork. And the the NFL and and Major League Baseball have entire systems set up to clear and screen and get that done for their athletes. So again, if you have a condition, fine. I think if you're just thinking to use this for performance enhancement, I mean, the, the data are a little mixed. So there are studies that show using these meds, um, they certainly keep you awake and help you avoid fatigue. Mm-hmm. And in at least lab tests, um, you are faster, stronger, and more powerful. So that's been shown. So that's kind of an incentive. Um, now, the flip side is in some people, though, these medicines can cause sleep problems and irritability and restlessness and tremors. So it's a little bit like, well, just pick your poison. Mm-hmm. But the thing is... Um, uh, you know, I, I, you're in the Tour de France and, and, you know, yeah, something to keep you going day after day. You could see the logic in wanting to try that at that level. But again, you're going to be nailed. I think for recreational athletes or, or more lower level competitors, 
I don't know what you're really going to get. You're taking a little bit of a risk because your dose hasn't been adjusted. You don't know where you're going to hit. And I honestly don't know if you're going to get anything more out of your Adderall than you'd get out of a reasonable pre-workout. You know, something that's basically, it's caffeine and citrulline. Go call it a day, get psyched up and go to your thing. There's not really any evidence to see you get anything more out of that. So this crazy stuff about, and I've read this on, you know, some of the social media sites, these guys are pumping Adderall on their Friday workout at the gym. I don't know what they're doing. You know, there, there, there really is no benefit. That one more rep they think they're getting, yeah. uh, you know, they're not making big gains. So yes, this is being used. I think a lot of it is just driven more in the bro science realm. And um, people are taking a lot of stuff. And I, I, uh, I think there's much risk as potential for benefit here. And I think there are much easier, more legal ways to get those benefits. Have a hit Starbucks on your way over to your gym and go for it, dude. You know, that's what I would say. Yeah, that's kind of my sense of things as well. It's like, yes, we know it's a stimulant so that all things associated with stimulants and exercise performance are likely to occur after having Adderall, for example. Um, But the risks of the impaired sleep potentially – irritability, tremor, et cetera, probably outweigh maybe even if there is an excess advantage compared to caffeine, which you wouldn't necessarily see. Now, now one interesting study, um, they found that, so part of what the stimulants do is they, they alter this relationship between focusing on what's important and focusing on background noise because mm-hmm. you need to shift. You need to be able to change. And that's the problem with ADHD. They found in basketball players performance went down because on the court, on the stimulants, they were too hyper-focused and they weren't able to flexibly shift and and deal with the evolving plays. Mm. So again, there may be some circumstances for some sports where this is really a bad idea. Interesting. Um, So I think, again, it's, it's, um, you know, I think I'm going to join you on Austin and pushing back that, you know, the benefits of these things do not at all outweigh the, the risks or the, negative effect. There are much easier ways to get what you're looking for. You should leave these to the people who, uh, who need the medicines. Yeah, we're in agreement. Uh, one, one more thing on the, uh, like the therapeutic use exemption. So there are some sports that are governed by WADA or USADA in the United States that allow individuals with ADHD or others, some other medical indication for these stimulants, for example, to use them day to day or whatever. But when it comes to competition use, they require them to be off the medications for seven to 10 days prior. Uh, what's your take on that? Imagine you have a patient who participates in one of these sports like powerlifting, for example, where you have to, they have to, you know, effectively taper off or come off for seven days prior to a meet. Is that health promoting for that, their, tra- you know, trajectory overall? Or I, I think, so I think if you're, you know, if you're serious about a sport, you got to play by the rules. Mm-hmm. And whatever your federation has decided, that's what you got to live with. So the nice thing, as I mentioned earlier about the stimulants, is they basically have a one-day effect. The Ritalin medicines wash out of your body in a day. Mm-hmm. The Adderall medicines can build up, but in a week's time, they'll, they'll be gone. Most people um, just, just, you know, as a function of life, people do go on and off these medicines. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if your powerlifting competition is at the end of the week where you're taking your step three exam, maybe you postpone one or the other, right? But most people can get by and you don't have to taper these medicines. You can stop the medicine. You'll maybe a bouncy, unfocused, whatever, but that's okay. You got a week, focus on your event. If that's what the rules of your of your sport require that I don't see a risk in that there's okay. more of a risk of being dirty and losing something that you'll work really hard to get. Yeah. A uh, personal story I had, uh, well, I was diagnosed with shift work sleep disorder, uh, during, <laughs> during, uh, medical school. Uh, really it was just unrecognized sleep apnea that I had <laughs> eventually figured this out. But any, in any case, I had a prescription from a daffodil, right. And, uh, went to a powerlifting meet, did not know that it was on the band list. And I won the meet. I got drug tested. Now at the power, local level in powerlifting, they send one of three panels on a urinalysis. It's either stimulants, anabolics, or diuretics. The meat promoter just picks one. Fortunately, they picked anabolics. So my test came out <laughs> clean. But I, I remember after I gave the sample, I was like, oh, 
crap. Crap. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, for everything worked out, uh, but yeah, sheer terror. I'm like, oh boy, I'm going to yeah. opt for stimulant, you know? So I actually did the first study of modafinil for adult ADHD and it, it was a mixed bag. It, it, uh, it actually didn't separate from placebo, but it's a very good weight promoting agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but no, exactly. I mean, I don't know, you know, you were like 27, you yeah. had worked hard and, and, you know, we hear stories like now, sometimes people say, oh, I didn't know, or, but, but well, you know, it was in the brownies, uh, who knows? <laughs> but again, if you're serious, you got to know the rules of your sport. You gotta, yep. you got it's just part of your preparation. You gotta be yep. clean. Uh, last question I wanted to ask still on this recreational use of Adderall, like obviously people who go to medical school, law school, other professional schools, or, you know, otherwise in college studying for exams or even on wall street in some occupations, this sort of stuff is rampant. You know, let me get some Adderall. Let me stay up. Do you view that in the same light where it's in generally more risk than reward? Uh, because the dose hasn't been, you know, uh, titrated appropriately and, and maybe these people are not getting what they actually need or how, how do you kind of. So we do, we do make a distinction between, misuse and abuse Mm -hmm. so abuse is somebody who is you know grinding up their adderall and snorting it basically to have cocaine okay so so and that's a small part of this but it's not not the big part of it most of it is misuse which is using it by by somebody for whom it's not prescribed or for some purpose and yeah it's really common interestingly though the data don't show that it really helps um, mm. The typical person who uses that, it, most most of them, it's white males at competitive schools who are in academic distress, who also use nicotine and alcohol. And you know, so I don't know. You know, my roommate, I forget what he would do if he had to write an all night paper for something in college. So that's what people are using it for. You don't put out great work, but (laughs) there seems to be great, you know, I'd say, look, have a couple of monster drinks, have a few espressos, get your work done a couple of days ahead of time. But, you know, so yes, it is used. I honestly don't lose too much sleep about that. I mean, it's, it's when the New York times gets bored, they'll, they'll write about Adderall abuse. That's what they're talking about. It's not the end of the world, but it isn't great either. I think. So that's sort of my view to me. Oh, What's important to physicians is to properly diagnosis, document what the impairments are, document your improvement, and keep track of your prescriptions. And then, and and advise your patients, particularly the ones going off to college, they need to be responsible. Um, but I trust them until they show me I can't. Until and, proven and, otherwise, yeah. And that's how, and occasionally that's happened, but not often. Usually I think people are very honest. No, that's, yeah, I love that. Uh, can you plug your book for the listeners? They may be interested. I'm, I'm just, like well, I said, all right. So then there'll be like 13 people who've read it. Um, yeah. uh, so you can, you can get it on Amazon. It's about $30. I think it's, it really was written. It's just called ADHD. You can put in my name, ADHD, Oxford press. It, um, I really wrote it for people, you know, medical students, residents, it's not technical, but I have a lot of families read it. So I think it's very accessible to lay people. It's not overly technical. And if you just want to get some, yeah, basic stuff. Um, yeah, have at it. Um, yeah, it's there on Amazon. It's fine. Yeah. 30. Uh, yeah. It's like $30. If, if you'd like to, then you'll know everything I know. So then we're set. <laughs> In a book. I'm going to give it a rousing endorsement. Like I said, oh. when I read it, I was like, I wish I would have read this years a few years earlier, but uh, I'm glad that I read it now. And uh, if you're curious about this or want to learn more, that would be my recommendation. Um, yeah, as far as I know, you're not on social media outside of Lurker. You don't post a lot of stuff on there. <laughs> no, I, I, you know, some of the people I work with are not the most savory of souls. So I have <laughs> to, uh, I do have to, um, yeah, be a little bit protective. Uh, All right. Well, we'll but- plug. We'll plug your book in the description and uh, this has been really, really great. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Jordan, it's really, I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, kind of getting into your, your scene a little bit and um, it's great. No, I appreciate all the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. All right, that's a wrap on episode 226 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Special thanks to Dr. Jim McGuff for taking time to sit down with me and talk about ADHD. Make sure to check out the links to our sponsors and to our products and seminars in the description below and make sure to head over to the website 
this weekend for our Memorial Day weekend sale. But before you go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.